The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So I'm going to be wrapping up this, this sermon series that we've uh, been journeying through the last six weeks entitled Joy in the Journey. And if you've been here with us, um, I've been speaking on how we discover, grow, and protect God's joy in our lives. And today I want to close out this series by casting a vision, or at least giving you a glimpse, a small glimpse of the ultimate joy that awaits us as believers. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big planner, and so when I go on vacations, I did this for my honeymoon, I did this for our 10-year anniversary, anywhere we're going somewhere nice, I like to just put together a spreadsheet of, of you know, my vacation plan, because I want to just maximize our time there, and it, and it gives me something to look forward to. Does anyone else do this? So, like, honestly, I plan every, bre- every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner. I do all the Yelp research. I plan an activity in between each meal. It, it, sometimes it drives my wife crazy. She, just, she likes to just hang out by the pool, and I'm a big planner. But it helps me to just to know, like, what's ahead. And it helps me to kind of just get through the day, you know, right? If, when you have a vacation to look forward to, when you've done the research, when you understand, you know, um, all the good things that are in front of you. It just helps you kind of get through the day. And, you know, I think heaven is kind of like that. You know, that we're journeying through this life. It's a very difficult journey. And yet, how often do we really take time to stop and think about all that's ahead of us? Right? And, um, you know, I do that for a vacation that's like a week long. Heaven is for an eternity. And if you're anything like me, I have to confess, like, I spend very little time thinking about heaven. And yet, if you think about it, just linearly, this is where we're going to be spending all of eternity, right? And so this morning I want to speak a little bit to that, that there's a joy in the journey, but there's also a future joy, right, that the Bible speaks of that gives us the strength to persevere as Jesus did. And, you know, Hebrews tells us that um, Jesus... Uh, was able to endure the cross, and it says this, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And what it's saying is, in, in his darkest moments, Jesus looked forward to a future joy in which to draw strength. Right? And that same joy is promised to us, a future heavenly joy that far outweighs this present earthly one. And ultimately, that is what we need to fix our eyes on. That is what we should contemplate and meditate upon and look forward to. And so, in, the spirit, in that spirit, today's message is entitled, uh, The Eternality of Joy, Heaven. There really is not enough time to unpack today um, in any comprehensive way, like what heaven will be like. It's, there's just so much to say. We could do a whole sermon series on it, but I want to at least attempt to whet your appetite for what we can look forward to as believers. And in the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John, he gives us a vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And he says this, he writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. You know, in uh, 2009, James Cameron followed up his hit movie, Titanic, with another film which broke all the, re- uh, the records that Titanic had actually set, and it was a film named Avatar. I don't know if you guys remember this film, but this was a sci-fi film. It was of this utip- utopian world uh, called Pandora, right? And it, it's a world that ends up being exploited by humans for its natural resources, but apparently Cameron did such a good job presenting the beauty of this alien planet that it had an unintended effect on its fans, right? Depression. And shortly after the film was released, CNN published this article just explaining this phenomenon. And they wrote this, James Cameron's completely immersive spectacle, Avatar, may have been a little too real for some fans who say they've experienced depression and suicidal thoughts after seeing the film because they long to enjoy the beauty of the alien world, Pandora. On the fan forum site, Avatar Forums, a topic thread entitled Ways to Cope with the Depression of the Dream of Pandora Being Intangible has received more than a thousand posts from people experiencing depression and fans trying to help them cope. The topic became so popular that the forum administrator, Philippe Bagdasarian, had to create a second thread so people could continue to post their confused feelings about the movie. He said this, Philippe, I can understand why it made people depressed. The movie was so beautiful, and it shows something we don't have here on earth. I think people saw that we could be living in a completely different world, and that caused them to be depressed. A post by a user called Eloquent expresses an almost obsessive relationship with the film. They said, that's all I have been doing as of late, searching the internet for more info about Avatar." I guess that helps. It's so hard, I can't force myself to think that it's just a movie and to get over it, that living like the Navi will never happen. I think I need a rebound movie. So when I read this article, at first I thought, the reactions to this are kind of silly, right? I mean, but, you know, I think upon reflecting it, it made me realize, you know, my heart actually went out to them because I think these responses of sadness uh, touches on something that we can all relate to on some level, right? That the world that we live in here and now is just is utterly lost. It's, it's totally broken. And deep in our hearts, we want to believe that there is a better world out there for us. And, you know, this past week, we got a jarring reminder of the brokenness of this world, you know, with the mass shooting in Las Vegas. Just horrifying senseless violence. And it's a sad reminder that this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Right? Something is profoundly wrong. 
And as a people of faith, I think the vision that John shares with us of heaven is a reason for great hope. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her, adorned for her husband. You know, contrary to popular belief, heaven will not be a place far off in the clouds in which we're going to be clothed in white, just strumming harps all day, right? In heaven, we're not going to be disembodied spirits, meaning we're not going to be like these ghosts, right? Ghost-like creatures just floating around. The Bible tells us that we will have resurrected bodies, that will have a physical nature, just as Jesus did when he was resurrected. And we'll be able to eat and drink and dwell in a beautiful physical world. And it will be restored and a renewed earth, just as God originally intended it, full of all of his glory and all of his goodness. And, you know, the Bible tells us that when God created the universe, it, it was good. But once man fell and sin was introduced into the world, a curse fell upon all of creation. And all that God created as good has now been marred by sin and corrupt, corrupted by the curse. And Paul tells us that all of creation is, is groaning to be redeemed and to be restored back to her original state. And the prophet Isaiah, and now even the later, the apostle John, tells us that God will one day restore all that was lost under the curse by creating a new heavens and a new earth. This is the essence of the gospel story. It's a story of redemption and restoration. John writes, the new Jerusalem, or Anthony Hokema, a theologian, writes, the new Jerusalem does not remain in a heaven far off in space, but it comes down to the renewed earth. There the redeemed will spend eternity in resurrection bodies. So heaven and earth, now separated, will then be merged. The new earth will also be heaven, since God will dwell there with his people. Just imagine that in your mind's eye. Right? Heaven and earth coming together as one. This is a picture of God's union with all of mankind. And it's not just a spiritual metaphor. It will be a physical place. And, you know, I think oftentimes, you know, as Americans, as individualists, the gospel story we think of is just something between me and God, right? It's about me and my salvation, me and my sin. But something, it's something much bigger than that, right? It's a grander story in which an entire creation that is lost and broken by sin is eventually redeemed and renewed by God himself. It's, it's the fairy tale to end all fairy tales, but it's the one that is true. Behold, I am making all things new. And, you know, I think this is why when we watch almost any Disney movie, whether it's Tangled, Frozen, Beauty and the Beast, there's a scene at the very end, right, where it's not just one couple, right, but the entire land is transformed back from something that's desolate and broken to its original glory. You know, I, I'm not, I don't think Disney was thinking about the Bible when they wrote that script. But somehow they understand that this, this happy ending that resonates with us because this is one of our greatest longings, the redemption of this earth. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Heaven will be a place just completely devoid of of pain and suffering. And that's certainly something to look forward to. But more importantly, this is only possible because it will be a place filled with the unhindered presence of God. Just a place of perfect fellowship with our Creator. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And just as Jesus came down to earth to bring about her salvation, Emmanuel, God with us, we're told that God will come down again and he'll live with us in the place that he has made and he has prepared for us. And when this new heaven descends upon the new earth, that is what we can, we'll see. It's just an awesome picture. And you know, the same intimate fellowship between God and man that was shared in the Garden of Eden before the fall will come full circle and will be shared again between God and mankind in the new heaven and the new earth for all of eternity. That is the promise of God. That is the gospel. And I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. You know, hope that we can find joy in knowing that all that is wrong with the world will one day be made right when God brings about this new heaven and this new earth. But what can we expect for ourselves in heaven? not just the redemption of all of creation, but what will be the best part of being there? You know, if there's one aspect of heaven that I, I want to explore today I, I think, that I think captures the essence of heaven's greatest joy, it's this idea of a beatific vision, right? this inexpressible joy that will be ours when we finally see Jesus face to face. This is one of the most powerful and pervasive longings expressed throughout scripture this desire to enter into the presence of god and to see his face the beatific vision and it was the longing of nearly every great uh, person of god in the bible you know moses in exodus 33 he asked god show me your glory and god's response is you you can't see my face for no man will see my face and live he does allow him to see his back as he passes by. And so Moses is the only man to even catch a glimpse of God. And, and we're told that he's literally transformed by the experience to such a degree that his, his face is shining upon that experience. And then in the wilderness, this is the blessing that he gives to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You know, the great psalmist, David, the one proclaimed by God as the the man after my own heart, said this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In Psalm 27, 4. 
You know, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but one day face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The Apostle Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In John, the same apostle who wrote Revelation in 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Beatific vision. But what does this mean, and, and why should we anticipate this so fervently? You know, I think to get a taste of the beauty of this vision, you have to first understand one of the most prevailing metaphors that we find throughout the Bible, and that's the metaphor of marriage. Right? John speaks to this when he describes the New Jerusalem as coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as, a, as what? As a bride adorned for her husband. Have you ever noticed that the Bible opens with a marriage in Genesis 2 and it closes with a wedding to end all weddings in Revelation 19? This is not a coincidence. If there is one overarching story in the Bible that stretches from beginning to end, it's a story of love. But it's not a story of love between a man and a woman. No, it's much bigger than that. It's a story of love between God and us. And I'm convinced that God created marriage between a man and a woman for this very purpose. Not just as a cure for our loneliness or as a means for procreation and making families. Those are all secondary to one greater purpose. God created marriage, and I believe even sex, to help us see the unique nature and the depth of his love for us and the glorious joy that awaits us in heaven. And I think this is why in Ephesians, Paul says, when he's talking about the marriage union, this mystery, this revelation is profound. That marriage between a man and a woman was actually designed by God to be a picture of what? Christ and the church. Which is what? Our union with Jesus. Our relationship with him as believers by faith. And so for the remainder of this message, I want to unpack what we can learn about the joy that awaits us in heaven through the glimpses that we are given through this mystery or this revelation of the marriage union. Now, I'm going to throw a lot at you like in the next 15, 20 minutes here, but I want to just encourage you to just try to stay with me as best as you can. Um, in the end, I think you'll see how it all comes together, and I don't think it would be possible for you to look at marriage and sex ever in the same way again. I know it really changed the way I look at it. Um, you know, when we go back to the very beginning of marriage, you know, when two people come together in marriage, their union is bonded by a covenant. For all of us that have been married in this room, you know the exercise, right? You look at your spouse, they look at you, and you repeat these vows to one another, right? And this is a promise of love, right? This is not just a profession of love. Like, I'm not just here on my wedding day with, with my wife, Kim, to just tell the world that I love Kim. 
I'm actually in front of all these people and before God himself saying, I promise to love you, right? And this is a promise of love that I will hold true to these stated vows, right? Through good times and bad, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, till death do us part, right? This is a promise. And as with any promise, it has to be received by, by faith, right? Every promise is received by faith. There's no guarantee that both sides will fulfill, right, the agreement to that promise. And so you have to take it by faith. And if you think about it, this is really no different from what happens when we enter into a covenant relationship with God himself, with Jesus. By faith, we are trusting in his promise of love to us. And, you know, the first time I read Romans 8, thinking about this in mind, it, it really kind of rocked my world. It said in Romans 8, neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you begin to read this, you begin to understand that this actually reads like wedding vows, doesn't it? God's covenant to us in which we enter into a union with him and we receive that promise by faith, right? And this is why in Ezekiel 16.8, God says to Israel, I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. But here's what I want us to understand. You know, when God expresses his love to us in the form of a covenant, he's actually demonstrating to us something about the nature of his love, and that is it is unconditional no matter what the conditions, no matter what the circumstances, death nor life, angels nor demons, height nor death, things present or things to come, right? He will always, always love us. And nothing will separate us from his love. But not only that, there's something else that happens when we enter into a covenant of marriage. We're told that two become one, right? And when we enter into this promise by faith, God, who is a spirit, is enjoining two together as one. There's a spiritual union that takes place between a husband and a wife in that moment. And that's why marriage is so sacred. It's God's institution. It's God's idea. And in Matthew 19, when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, you know, he tells them that marriage is a sacred union that God himself unites, right? And it's a spiritual one, which is why he declares this. He says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God has joined them together. And when we enter into a covenant relationship, that is what happens. That's a spiritual union that takes place. Just as God joins together a husband and a wife, in the very same way, when we enter into a covenant relationship with Christ, he also joins himself together with us, and we're spiritually united. Does that make sense? You know, and I think this is one of the reasons why divorce is a big deal to God. Because if the marriage is not just a legal contract, right, between a husband and a wife, if marriage is something bigger and more transcendent than that, that is designed to picture and proclaim the union between Christ and the church, then nothing, where nothing would separate us from his love, nothing could break that covenant, then you could begin to understand 
why divorce matters to God, right? What does all this have to do with heaven? Well, when you listen to the way the world describes heaven, it's often in the form of this expression of transcendent love, right? And, of course, the secular world does not know how to relate this to God. And so what is the object of this transcendent love? It's always another man or another woman, right? This is what we we hear on the radio every day, right? Um, I'm going to go way back in time. Um, But back in the 80s, I think, or maybe early 90s, one of my favorite artists, Belinda Carlisle, she, she sang this song called Heaven is a Place on Earth. And somehow, you know, she's making this connection between, you know, this earthly experience of love and something divine, right? Ooh, baby, do you know what it's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. <laughs> I don't know who said that. Just going to edit that out of the recording. I'm not going to sing it. So what she's singing about is about how being in intimate union with another person is like bringing heaven down to earth. And this intimate union is not just relational, but it's even expressed in the most intimate possible way that we can find in this in this earth. It's, it's even sexual. And this is why Bruno Mars can sing in his song Locked Out of Heaven, right? I'm not going to sing it. You bring me to my knees and you make me testify. You can make a sinner change his ways. Open up your gates because I want to, can't wait to see the light and right there is where I want to stay because your sex takes me to paradise and it shows you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long. Notice how Bruno Mars equates sex to this transcendent spiritual experience, right? Your sex takes me to paradise. You make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long. So where am I going with all this? I bring this up because I think even secular artists are actually touching on something that we as Christians rarely think about and let alone admit, and that's this, that sex is actually a beautiful thing. And not only that, it's actually a transcendent experience that is pointing us to something transcendent. Back in January of 2004, Time Magazine did a cover on the topic of sex, and in in the, the main article they wrote this, about sex, of, of all the splendidly, ridiculous, transcendently fulfilling things that humans do, it is sex that most confounds understanding. What in the world are we doing? Why in the world are we so consumed by it? The impulse to procreate may lie at the heart of sex, but bursting from our sexual center is a whole spangle of other things, art, song, Romance, obsession, rapture, sorrow, companionship, love, even violence and criminality. Right? Can we just admit as Christians that sex is an incredibly powerful experience? Arguably one of the few things on earth that can engage mind, body, and spirit in such a way that nothing else can. Right? 
And just as the Bible tells us when God created the universe that it was good, I think we need to remember as Christians that sex in and of itself is not a bad thing. Right? It's good. God created it for our enjoyment and for his glory. The problem is, just like creation, something that God created as good has been marred by sin and has been corrupted by the curse. And so I know for many of us, sex doesn't seem like a good thing, right? Because so much evil and so much pain and suffering and brokenness has come out of sex in this world because it's been used and abused in sinful ways so far from God's original design. But more than this world, more than Bruno and Belinda, we as Christians should extol the beauty and the virtue of sex as something to be honored when it's practiced within God's design because it's proclaiming something really profound. You know, when you observe sex in line with God's design, one man, one woman, under a covenant relationship, it preserves and it proclaims a true picture of the gospel and what awaits us in heaven. Right? What is that? That when we first enter into a spiritual union with Christ, centered upon a covenant that is secured by faith, then and only then will we experience a physical union that is marked by intimacy and wonder and beauty and bliss. That was what God had in mind when he designed sex. That is what he's pointing us to. I mean, why, why, why else is sex such an enjoyable experience, at least by God's design? You know, when I was younger, there was this a TV series called V, Visitors, like the, this alien world. You guys ever watch that? Um, they used to copulate as aliens by just taking off their gloves and, like, touching each other's hands like this. And I remember I was like, 10 or 11 years old, and I'm watching this, and I'm like, what are they doing? You know, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, but if you think about it, why didn't God just do that? You know, why couldn't we just procreate by doing something like this or by passing a common cold or a virus? Why did he have to make it such a powerful, euphoric, physical experience? By observing God's rules for sex, there's something wonderful that God is communicating about the gospel and about what awaits us in heaven. For those of us who enter into a covenant relationship with Christ by faith, who have first entered into a spiritual union with him, the promise of God is that then and only then, something awesome is going to follow. A physical union with him that is going to be full of intimacy and wonder and beauty and bliss. And the small glimpse that we find on earth in the form of the sexual climax, an experience which is measured in seconds, right, will be replaced with everything that it was pointing to, which is an infinite and an increasing bliss for an eternity in heaven. I believe this is why God created sex, to be such a powerful experience. But still, as a powerful ex as experience as it is on earth, it's still only just a shadow. It's just a tiny foretaste of the glory and the wonder and the bliss that will be ours when we come into Jesus' presence, when we see him face to face. 
You know, the great church father, Augustine, refers to Christ as the fountain of our happiness, the end of all desires. And as David proclaims in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And as I said in the very first sermon in this series, God is not against giving us pleasures and the fullness of, our, of joy, but he wants us to know that ultimately this can only be found in him. Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, a man who arguably studied and wrote about heaven more than any other person, saw heaven as a place of never-ending ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and greater joy in him. Meaning heaven will not be a place where there will be this static form of happiness. Right? Or, oh, nice, you know, now we can just get on with the rest of eternity. But it will be a place where with each passing moment, our joy will increase more and more I want to close with, um, with, this, with a video, and uh, I want to preface it by explaining what's happening here because um, I think it really uh, captures just a glimpse of what's in store for us in heaven. Back in 2010, um, a couple of scientists stumbled across a new technology which enhances vision for people with colorblindness. And they started this company called Enchroma, and basically these special sunglasses for the colorblind. And these glasses aren't cheap, but if you go online, you can watch all kinds of YouTube videos of people who put these glasses on for the very first time. And I want you to watch it, and then um, we'll follow up. Close your eyes. Keep them closed. There they are. Open your eyes. They work. <laughs> Buddy, can you look at the... Look at the Jason, look out at the frisbees. At the frisbees. Can you see them? Can you see the differences? I think that's just a small taste of what heaven will be like when we enter into the presence of Christ. 
that we will see him in ways that we've, we've never seen before, more beautiful than we ever imagined. And like David, that we would just, that would be our one desire, even when we get to heaven, that to just gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And, you know, heaven says there will be no tears, but I, I think there will be tears, not tears of sadness, but just as we saw, just tears of joy. So overwhelmed by the beauty that we haven't seen fully and clearly until we've been given the eyes to see him face to face. Let's bow in prayer. You know, we are told that there will be no marriage in heaven. And um, there's really only one reason why. Because everything that marriage was designed to point us to will be fulfilled when we encounter Christ face to face in heaven. The intimacy, the glory, the beauty, and the bliss of this union that marriage and sex was designed by God to represent will be found in Christ. So whether you're married or you're single or you're divorced or you're separated, this is meaningful for you. This message is for you. And whether sex is something that you delight in today or something that you've been wounded by profoundly, this this is a message for you. Marriage on earth is not the end-all, be-all. Sex on earth is not the end-all, be-all. Our union with Christ is. And the joy we experience from that shadow is just a small glimpse of what awaits us in heaven. Our union with Christ. Not just spiritually, but physically. That is what marriage was designed to picture and point us to. Come that day when we physically see Jesus in our new glorified bodies face to face and know him as we have been fully known, we will experience the eternal joy, the indescribable euphoria of being physically united with him, a glorious physical union that was broken by man in the beginning, we're told will be restored by God in the end. This is our great hope. This will be our endless joy. Let's just meditate upon that for a few minutes. What awaits us, not just for a week, but for an eternity. And the goodness of God and the glory of the gospel. And how by his grace, and even things like marriage and sex, he's drawing us to himself and revealing something about his love for us and the promise that awaits. Let's just reflect upon that for a few minutes as we continue in prayer. And the worship team will close us in song.